This morning, I'm speaking with someone who is in Ukraine proper, and that is Gonzalo Lira, a Chilean who's been living in Ukraine for many years now. He is perfectly poised, in my opinion, to give an excellent assessment of realities on the ground. Gonzalo is an active commentator, routinely appearing on the Duran, and has a large following on his Telegram channel, which I definitely suggest people follow, as well as being very active on Twitter. Gonzalo, let's dive straight in. Can you explain how we got here, the lead up to today from the events of 2014 in Ukraine until now and the current situation where you are? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure, a real delight, and I admire your work for quite some time now in this situation, and so it's great to be on. Now, uh, to answer your question, uh, what happened starting in 2014 was the um, uh, Kiev regime, as the Russians have called it since then, because they believe it is illegitimate. The Kiev regime uh, installed a... The problem was that in order to achieve power in 2014, they needed the help of a whole bunch of uh, neo-Nazi and extreme nationalist paramilitary groups. These neo-Nazi and extreme nationalist paramilitary groups were, after the events of 2014, they were brought into the defense of Ukraine, into the armed forces of Ukraine, which proceeded on an accelerated expansion assisted by NATO. NATO never um, allowed Ukraine to join formally, but informally they established training bases, especially in Western Ukraine, and they trained all of the Ukraine uh, military in NATO tactics, NATO communications methods. So in a very real sense, the Ukrainian armed forces were NATO, but they also integrated these neo-Nazi hyper-nationalist elements, not just into the armed forces, by the way, also into the government itself. And these neo-Nazi extreme nationalist, um, extreme Ukrainian nationalist uh, elements uh, sort of poisoned the well. All of a sudden, the Ukrainian state became rapidly anti-Russian, and this expressed itself in the government itself uh, and also in its armed forces. There is constant shelling of the Donbass region, of the breakaway public republics of uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. And over the years, well, about 16,000 people were killed there, um, needlessly, and it was really because of the aggression of the Ukraine regime which never wanted to negotiate with the people of the breakaway republics uh, and pushed forward this extreme radical Ukrainian nationalism, especially across the south regions of the country and the eastern regions of the country. I'm in Kharkov. And Kharkov is uh, about, uh, I'd say about 40 kilometers away from the border with Russia. It is ethnically Russian. Russian is the uh, primary language here. Uh, Kharkov, for, um, for a very long period of its history, was a part of the Russian Empire. And so um, this kind of abuse was, you know, it created a great deal of resentment. Uh, on the other hand, also, many people in the East and the South realized that the Ukrainian government had the whip hand, and, sort of, and so they sort of like, um, you know, trimmed their sails to fit with the correct political fashion, okay? And so... Um, you have this government that is extremely nationalistic, and you have this armed force that has these neo-Nazi elements. And what's key is that there was the Azov Battalion and the Aden Battalion, that they were specific uh, army units that were hyper-nationalistic, hyper-neo-Nazi, 
hyper, you know, all the rest of it. Um, but at the same time, a lot of these neo-Nazi hyper-nationalistic elements were filtered throughout the Ukraine armed forces. And so what happened is that this uh, mentality seeped throughout the armed forces. And at the same time, they were being trained by NATO in very sophisticated tactics. And they were being armed by NATO with very sophisticated weapons. And so we have a, <laughs> it's hard to believe, but it's true. We have a um, neo-Nazi NATO army, which is what the Russians decided, you know, enough's enough. Mm. And uh, the, the trigger for it was the Russians got wind that the Ukrainians planned to invade the breakaway republics in a lightning strike and amassed an army of, well, it's, it's unclear the numbers at this point because we're in the fog of war, but um, at least 60,000, because that's the number who are now captured around the town of Kramatorsk in Eastern Ukraine. But um, it could have been, it could well be from reputable estimates as high as 100,000 in total. But the idea was that this army was going to sweep into Lugansk and Donetsk, the breakaway republics, and take them over, you know, and, and be done with the separatist movement altogether. And the Russians, in essence, beat them to the punch. Now, a lot of commentators have been seeing the Russian invasion. From the very beginning, it was obvious that the Russians had no intention of messing with the civilian population. They had every intention of demilitarizing and denazifying, as they said. Uh, and what did that mean? Demilitarizing means attacking the army, not the civilian infrastructure or population. And so that's what they did. They attacked the army. They hit command and control centers. They hit um, uh, weapons depots, fuel supplies, and all the rest of it, communications of various sorts. And um, what's happened is that the Russians have, in a very real sense, been tiptoeing into the country, trying to make sure not to break any of the cities. Okay. The only time they've had to break a city is when Ukrainian armed forces have used the civilian populations as, in essence, human shields. When they have positioned weapons, uh, uh, howitzers of different sorts and, and other weaponry among civilian outposts, which they have done. And, you know, the Russians are like, basically, okay, well, well we're just going to have to destroy it. And if that means that we destroy some, some uh, 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 civilian buildings along the way, this is very unfortunate. But, you know, our, our goal is to destroy the military. And the Ukrainians have very effectively used the um, Russian attacks in a PR campaign. They have been winning the PR war from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. But as I said very early on uh, of this conflict, there are two wars going on, the public relations war and the ground war. The Ukrainians are winning the public relations war. See, at the end of the day, only one of these two wars actually matters. And the Russians are winning on the ground. And what's remarkable is that the West refuses to accept this. They are living in a fantasy land, which is just bizarre. And the end of the first stage of this invasion, which happened you know, in the last few days, and the announcement by the Russian Ministry of Defense that they were now pivoting and going forward with their second stage. In the West, they seem to believe that this shows that the Russians have realized that they are losing and, and all the rest of it. On the contrary, <laughs> the Russians entered Ukraine with an army of 109,000 men uh, against a total armed force, and this includes regular army, 260,000 men, 
plus another 350,000 men of civil defense. That's a total armed force of 600,000 men. And you would say that 190,000 fighters against 600,000 men, they're going to lose. But the Russians are winning because they've uh, carried out mobile warfare, the kind of warfare that hasn't been seen since World War II, quite frankly, of pinning enemy units down and, and keeping them busy. Like, for instance, the attacks around Kiev, the attacks around Kharkov, where I am now, the, attack, the uh, threatened but never executed attack on Odessa. They have basically pinned down huge chunks of Ukraine's best fighters as they've been surrounding that battle group that was in eastern Ukraine, which has now been basically, it's almost completely bottled up around the Kramatorsk, as I said before. Now, the key issue is that, see, in this kind of maneuver warfare, what you need is the ability to move. <laughs> That's why it's called maneuver warfare. And what happens is that the Russians denied the Ukraines the ability to move very early on by destroying command and control, by destroying its uh, air force, and most important of all, destroying its gas supplies, which they've been systematically doing. People seem to have noticed it recently. And they've noticed it recently because it's only recently that the Ukrainians uh, and, and, the, um, and the West are coming to the understanding that the Ukraine army is out of gasoline. They can't move. In fact, the Russians have been hitting uh, oil depots, uh, fuel depots. Weapons depots, yes, but mostly fuel from the very beginning. Their goal was to make it impossible for the Ukraine army to move, and they've succeeded in that. And so now what's going on is that the Ukraine army in the east is sitting there. They can't move, and the Russians can move. And so they're encircling it, and over the next two weeks, they're going to annihilate it mm -hmm. one way or the other. Either they're going to um, demand the surrender of these troops, or they're just going to bomb it into you know, the next lifetime. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a tragedy as far as I'm concerned. I think it's horrible. I think that the Zelensky regime should surrender. They should have surrendered quite some time ago. The, I think the decisive moment was the, the capture of Mariupol, which was decimated. Of course, it's reduced to rubble. But this was key because they wiped out the Azov battalion and they, they hit it where it really hurts. And so I think that the war is over, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a practical sense, because there's no way for the Russians to lose at this time. It would, be, it would take, an, uh, you know, a literal act of the gods. You know, they'd have to show up with, uh, you know, two more divisions, you know, I mean, several divisions, quite frankly, and all kinds of air power before the, the Russians would lose at this point, because they are winning. And, and to claim otherwise is just very bizarre. But, you know, hope is lasting to die, it seems to me. So anyway, that's a brief assessment of what's going on. Oh, that, that's a really wonderful and thorough uh, assessment. Thank you very much for that, Gonzalo. And um, I just want to touch on some of the things that you've mentioned. I really, uh, sure. I really appreciate that you um, made clear to listeners Russia's military strategy and that it isn't a whole-scale bombing of civilian areas, but it's a methodical targeting mm -hmm. of Ukrainian military um, infrastructure 
And, and, and the point that, you know, although the Ukrainian forces were what, like triple or more of what Russia allotted to this operation, uh, Russia has been mm-hmm. successful in its operation. Um, and uh, I think also just given like, uh, to be honest, like I can't follow, I can't listen to or stomach the um, incessant hysteric Western media, but I'm very aware of kind of the, <laughs> the nonsense that they're, they're projecting of Russia, mm-hmm. the Russian army being weak, the Russian army having to retreat because Ukrainians uh, forces are just so you know powerful etc cetera, etc cetera. but also mm-hmm. um, also I know in terms of the propaganda war you referred to I know that um, that the Western media and Ukrainian media is claiming you know Russia is striking hospitals and schools and you know they're they're mm-hmm. taking images from from Syria for example uh, for their their propaganda but I think um, there are instances in which um, schools or hospitals or or infrastructure have been targeted but you you very clearly um, articulated why that could happen and it's not because a, a deliberate policy of Russia just wantonly wanting to target uh, infrastructure to the contrary as you as you noted, Russia is avoiding that and moving uh, much more carefully and slowly than any of the American, Saudi, Israeli um, wars on, on on different countries and peoples uh, where they just obliterate entire neighborhoods or cities. Um, but yeah. you, you noted that in, in the, the cases where infrastructure has been targeted, it's precisely because these Ukrainian forces have occupied uh, the infrastructure. And I actually yeah. saw that recently in the Donbass. Um, I have to, uh, I'd have to, maybe you can help me remember the name of the, uh, the town I visited, um, or I can just scroll through my notes here. But anyway, there was a school that, uh, I'm sorry, there was a hospital that, um, that was uh, pretty much fully destroyed. Uh, it was um, Volnokova, I believe the uh-huh. town is. But the reason was because it was occupied by Ukrainian forces. And just to draw, I think we're going to, in the conversation, I do want to be drawing a lot of parallels between what happened in Syria and what's happening now, because there are many, many parallels from, from the you know, military strategies to the war propaganda from the West um, to many other things. But also in Syria, if, if we just look at Aleppo alone, but not exclusive to Aleppo, any areas occupied by the terrorists that were funded and armed and backed by the West and its allies, um, the same thing happened. You know, they occupied uh, hospitals, they occupied schools, they militarized them, and they turned them into headquarters, they ceased to function as, as their previous function as hospitals or schools, and they became, unfortunately, uh, legitimate military targets. Um, and they also embedded, like you mentioned, they embedded amongst civilians, uh, which is uh, tragic because it does mean that civilians will become casualties of war. Um, but I, I really just, I appreciate that you mentioned all these things because the, this is the picture people in the West are not getting it. And, and I think that you you laid it out very clearly. Also, of course, highlighting um, the, the neo-Nazi and extreme nationalist forces that, you know, there's a meme, I, I'm sure you've probably seen um, Western media reporting on Ukraine prior to February 20, uh, 2022. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it had neo-Nazi, 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 Israel arming neo-Nazis, West uh, meeting, arming, Canada arming, et cetera, et cetera. And now no mention of it, right? So uh, do you want to oh, yeah. talk, talk a little bit more about that? And oh, um, yeah. well, yeah. The, the weird thing is that th- these groups were financed by, um, Jewish oligarchs, <laughs> if you can believe it. That it's is true. That yeah. is an important point. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt, but people always say, but Eva Zelensky's Jewish. How could there be neo Nazis in Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, I know. Crazy as that may sound. But the thing is, see, there's a meme floating around of a headline that says uh, ADL does not denounce neo Nazis, quote, 
they've never done anything to us uh, Jewish people. So, you know, it's okay, basically. There's a meme floating around. It's actually the, um, the, the thumbnail for my, um, for, my, uh, for my chat on my Telegram channel, because it's, it's, it's absurd, but it's true. You know, I mean, that, that the, um, the person who started the funding for or really gave a, a kickstart to the funding of these neo-Nazi groups is a, um, a Ukrainian Jewish Cypriot oligarch by the name of Ihor Kolomoisky. Mm. He is a man, a, a very shady individual. He has a deep ties to organized crime and uh, he is involved in media, involved in banking. He's uh, the partial owner of Pivot Bank. He's also the uh, majority owner of One Plus One Media, which is the largest media company in Ukraine or was before this incident. Uh, he's also um, has a controlling stake in Burisma, the gas company. Mm. And that's very interesting because Burisma, of course, had these deals with um, Hunter Biden. You know, so there's all kinds of stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. I, it's bizarre, the connections, the spider web connections that among a whole host of different people, it turns out that they're much, much closer than you realize. Uh, Hunter Biden, uh, Ihor Kolomoisky. Ihor Kolomoisky was the man who financed uh, Zelensky's uh, campaign. In fact, Ihor Kolomoisky was the man who picked Zelensky to be president. He was the one through his one media company that financed the um, Servant of the People TV show, which was the springboard for Zelensky's political career. Zelensky, before that TV show, had never shown any interest in politics whatsoever. He was a successful comedic romantic comedy actor, and he got into this role of Servant of the People. They created a party named Servant of the People and had him as the candidate, and he won in 2019, and of course, a very shady election, but that's important. And all of this was bankrolled by Kolomoisky, and Kolomoisky was the one who bankrolled back in 2012, 13, uh, right before the revolution, he bankrolled the Azov Battalion, the neo-Nazi uh, organization. And he has deep ties to Victoria Newland, who is the Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs in the US State Department, and who is the woman most responsible for the coup d'etat of 2014. And it is very well known that they have deep ties, Victoria Newland and Igor Kolomoisky. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and what's interesting is that uh, Victoria Newland, um, her grandfather was from uh, the area around Odessa, and her grandfather was uh, persecuted in the, um, I forget the name of the program of, uh, uh, of 1905, and in 1907, he emigrated to um, the United States, where he never was able to fit in, though his son, Sherwin Newland, uh, original name is Shebel uh, Noodlemeyer, Noodleman, something like that. I, I have it written down. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I don't have my notes right in front of me. Yeah. But the, the point is, let's see, there are long-standing ties between Victoria Newland and Ukraine, Victoria Newland and Ihor Kolomoisky. And Ihor Kolomoisky financed this Azov Battalion and other neo-Nazi groups. And these neo-Nazi groups filtered into uh, the... Um, the, what you call it, the uh, the um, the Ukrainian state, okay, and so that's why you have the situation that you currently have, and it's deeply disturbing, and you have to understand that uh, the, these um, neo-Nazi you know groups they are funded by Jewish money and 
and and it, it's considered acceptable. I suppose you know muscle is muscle, you know. But these people are all criminals. I mean, they, they are they are stone cold criminals. They are not you know. Uh, um, it, how can I put it? It's it's very bizarre because when you when you look at um, Russian uh, uh, um, German history during the 30s, you realize that there were basically two camps in the Nazi Party. There were the people who were ideologically committed to an autarky, an, an autar autarkic uh, state, that is a self-sufficient state. And they were ideologically committed to having a German state for the German people. And then there were the thugs, and those were the brown shirts. And of course, the, the Knight of the Long Knives, famously, Hitler got rid of that whole group, Eric Romer and all the rest of it. Now imagine if Eric Romer and the brown shirts had beaten Hitler and been the powers in Germany. That's the situation you have in Ukraine. The brown shirts control the country. The brown shirts bring this rampant corruption. And the corruption in Ukraine is necessary so that the Western politicians who have ties to Ukraine can continue on with their grift, you see? Because Ukraine is an incredibly rich country. It is a huge food producer. It also produces all kinds of industrial uh, um, commodities. It also has a, a very um, developed industrial base and not to mention an incredibly educated, hardworking, decent population. But the thing is, see, it's incredibly poor corruption, the rampant corruption that is encouraged by Western politicians so that they themselves can feed off, you see? And so all of this corruption works hand in glove with these oligarchs in Ukraine, with these State Department officials in Washington. And all of it is designed to be a knife at the throat of Russia. And that's why Russia invaded, because they just had enough. And they decided, you know, if we allow this fester and continue, eventually we're going to have NATO nuclear missiles at our doorstep. And these people are going to kill Russian citizens or, or ethnic Russians. We're not going to allow them. Because that was the goal of the army that was about to sweep into the, the Donbass, into Lugansk and Donetsk. The Ukrainian army planned to butcher the ethnic uh, Russians. And the fact of how the Ukrainian armed forces have treated Russian prisoners of war proves that. Because they have committed the most grotesque atrocities, mm. and they're bragging about it. Yes. That's the thing. They are filming these videos that have gone around the world. It's not that they are surreptitiously filming this. No, they're bragging about it. They are happy to show the world the brutality with which they will uh, uh, deal with anyone who is Russian, violating every natural law and every law of war. You know, it's it's despicable as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, it, it well, it absolutely is. Um, and again, as I said uh, earlier, um, parallels between uh, terrorism in Syria and and what's happening in Ukraine because the the terrorists in Syria, from the very beginning in 2011, you know, we were told by Western media that this was a a, a nonviolent uprising. And to be clear, uh -huh. there, were, there were there were definitely people that wanted political change in Syria. There were people that went out in the streets, but they very, including friends of mine in Syria who have gotten to know over the years. Uh, and but they said, you know, very quickly, we realized this was not what we wanted. You know, this was a very bloody, uh, not even uprising. Well, the, but yeah, this uh, is a typical pattern of the color revolutions that yeah. the West carries out. 
they, they take an originally past um, uh, Pacific uh, peaceful demonstration over a legitimate grievance that, that people have, but not something enough to overthrow the government. Mm -hmm. And they, they take it and they inject these NGOs that bring basically thugs, thugs who, who are agents provocateurs who turn everything very violent very violent, very confrontational, and the government has only two choices, either to passively accept this and be overrun, or crack down, have the PR loss, and all of a sudden there are a lot of other players who start to get involved and the government is overthrown. Yes. This has been the pattern of these color revolutions. And the Russians have realized this, and now they know how to deal with it. I don't think that we're ever going to see another color revolution, quite frankly, because the Russians in particular have become experts at, at spotting them and nipping them at the bud as they did in Kazakhstan a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, with Syria, actually, um, I've had many Syrians say that uh, President Assad wasn't harsh enough. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, for, for skeptics out there, I, I just want to uh, make some points about that. Like, uh, because for the first um, first few weeks, uh, you know, the, the supposed revolution, uh, non-revolution uh, started in Dara in southern Syria. And for the first few weeks, Police and security force and army only had batons. This is an order from top down. They did not have they did not have weapons. They could not defend themselves, and they were being slaughtered by these armed uh, groups within the protesters. So you know, um, if if they had if they had been allowed to respond as America or Israel would have responded, you know, it would have ended very quickly. But um, the government was trying to you know keep the situation from boiling. Unfortunately, it was the perhaps not the best approach. But uh, just to make, finish a point I was making in, a moment ago, like from the very beginning, in in Syria there were there were there were uh, terrorists. They they hadn't formed their factions, whether they were supposed Free Syrian Army or Al Nusra or any of the other um, alphabet of uh, of terrorist groups in Syria. But from the very beginning, they were beheading. Uh, soldiers and civilians. They were doing heinous crimes, like disgusting things that I think normal people can't even imagine. And this has been the pattern. And, you know, back to what we're talking about in, in Ukraine and these new Nazis and extremists um, doing the same thing, not only to POWs, prisoners of war, but also to civilians. Can you talk a bit more about that? About what they have been doing to civilians? Yeah, because, yes. I, you uh, know, all these I stand with Ukraine people Maybe they're well-meaning, but do they know what they're really standing with? Like, it's not just a matter, it's already no, no. horrific anybody, anybody, yeah, Anybody who says, I stand with Ukraine, is standing with neo-Nazi fascist thugs who use people as human shields, who go about kidnapping people who disagree with them mm -hmm. and torturing them and murdering them and dumping their bodies. I can give you names of specific individuals, like off the top of my head, there is the mayor of a small town, in Lugansk, in the Lugansk area called uh, um, Volodymyr uh, Struk, who was um, kidnapped, I do believe around, I, I want to say the 1st of March, 2nd of March, something like that, like it was a Monday. And um, he was kidnapped from his home in front of his uh, wife and children, and he was disappeared. And two days later, his corpse was found shot through the heart and dumped in the middle of the town that he was a mayor of, a town of 18,000 people, not a particularly important political figure, but he was targeted for assassination because he was unsufficiently, um, because he was too pro-Russian. There was the, uh, the, the, um, the Kiriev, who was one of the negotiators of, I mean, think about it, the, one of the negotiators on the Ukrainian side, who was also assassinated by the SBU. The SBU is the uh, Ukrainian uh, state uh, security service, 
basically the equivalent of the KGB. And these people, uh, I mean, uh, it's very well known that they will kidnap, uh, torture, murder people who are considered insufficiently patriotic, who are considered to be uh, uh, pro-Russian. You know? And sometimes on the mere suspicion of it, uh, Kiryev, the um, negotiator, he was never accused of any crime. It was this mere suspicion that he was pro-Russian, that he was executed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, these, are the, these are the things that are going on. And there are journalists who are disappearing. Yes. And the problem right now is that it's not clear which journalists have disappeared and which have simply gone underground because there's a great deal of flux of the population because of the, of the war. You know, something like um, the la- latest estimate I've heard is roughly 12 to 15 people have been displaced in Ukraine that simply left, irrespective of whether they've gone outside of the country or remained inside. Now, the problem is that the Zelensky regime from the very beginning of this conflict imposed a uh, forced conscription of every able-bodied man uh, between 18 and 60. And so that meant that a lot of family men, a lot of journalists, a lot of people uh, went underground because they couldn't afford to be caught by, um, by these conscription, uh, um, uh, these constri- conscription wagons. Mm-hmm. And so they disappeared. And so because of this, we're not sure if the journalists have gone underground and they're laying low or if they've been snatched by the SBU. Now, it's known that the SBU has been using this to snatch people, to, to snatch them and, and get them so that uh, you know, nobody, uh, nobody knows, nobody's the wiser because of the chaos going on, okay? And this is happening wholesale. And, and so the, the people in the West don't seem to realize this. Now, there are some horrific videos going around that have caused absolute shock in Russia in particular, uh, and also in China, interestingly enough, in China, they're, they're just completely shocked by these videos mm-hmm. in a way that seems uh, disproportionate. And it seems to be very organic. Mm-hmm. Um, because in China, you never know if it's, you know, if it's being manufactured or it's real. But, uh, you know, accounts I've heard say that, no, it seems to be pretty organic. And in Russia, of course, it's completely organic. It shows uh, there have been images of Russian POWs tied up, being brought off of trucks, of, of trucks where they were being transported. And as soon as they get off the truck, they are shot in the knees or the groin. Um, and some of them have died from their injuries. Uh, I shot there for sport and the um, Ukrainian armed forces videotaping this and laughing about it and, and showing it and you know, having no noble at all showing the, this horrifying imagery. And uh, these images have been broadcast. Patrick Lancaster, who is a very, very brave individual, has been, uh, he's an American, he's uh, implanted with a Russian unit, and he's been going around here and there in the, um, in the fighting around Mariupol and all over the place. And I really, I mean, from what I understand, he seems like a very courageous journalist, to tell you the truth. I mean, certainly more courageous than I could ever be, I'll tell you that right now. And he's been going around with this unit. And the other day, he posted a video, literally stumbled upon the violated and murdered corpse of a woman. And it was clear that they had painted a swastika on her naked chest and, and belly uh, with her own blood. It, it was horrifying. And, and you could see that it was completely real because, um, you know, when, when people see something that horrifying, their reaction is like, oh, look at this horrifying thing. No, they sort of, oh my God. And they sort of like step back and sort of like, 
look around and they have this weird look to their face, like complete moral surprise, okay? And that was a look that you saw on, on Patrick Lancaster's face, it was clear. And also, uh, you know, you see enough bodies and enough combat and you realize, oh, that's real and oh, that's fake. Right. Uh, and and a quick a quick tip that you probably know, but a lot of listeners might not know. You can always tell when something is fake because the 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 people, whether alive or not, the people don't have much dust on their face. Their their faces are a little too clean. That's when you know it's fake. Okay. Uh, there was this uh, famous uh, thing of some woman being carried out of a maternity hospital, and her face was like it had blood and grime on it but not that coating of dust. It, it's hard to um, describe it, but once you see it once, you never forget it. And, and, you, and you instantly know, oh, that's real, or that's fake, as the case may be. And I saw that, that, um, that, that, that image that Patrick uh, Lancaster was showing, and I was like, that's real. That's absolutely real. It, yeah. it, because there's something about it that, uh, it's that layer of dust. You, you, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and just in talking about um, f fake or real images and videos, uh, when we were chatting yesterday, you, you made a really good point, too, about like um, the clarity of the camera, the camera angle. For example, I think you were talking about yeah. the Ukrainian bombing of uh, the center of Donetsk a couple of weeks ago with the Tuchka-U um, uh, um, missile, yeah. um, which killed, by the way, uh, as you know, but maybe listeners 20 don't. People, 20, yeah. yeah, 21 people and like 37 injured including um like uh limbs uh torn off um but you were making a point about the footage uh do you want to just talk what you what you were saying to me yesterday sure, about that? Sure. what's up ladies and gentlemen it's mr c from the c report and i'm stopping in for just a sec to encourage you guys to head over to the crreport.com at thecreport.com, you can get more information on The Sea Report, check out episode resources, follow our blog and get new articles every week, join our mailing list, and stay abreast on the latest news and information. That's right, head on over to thecreport.com, that's www.thecreport.com, and be sure to follow us on our social medias, Truth Social, Rumble, Twitch, Clout Hub, and Pilt.net. Yeah, well, because here in, in Kharkov, uh, there's Freedom Square, which is one of the largest squares in Europe, if not mm -hmm. the largest square in Europe. And then people in Kharkov are very proud of that fact. <laughs> uh, it's just an empty space. But anyway, <laughs> the point is that in front of facing that, that square, there's this uh, very beautiful building uh, built in stone. It's a municipal office building. It has no military value whatsoever. And early on in the war, I do believe it might have been the 1st of March or, or perhaps earlier, a missile struck it. And it was perfectly captured on video. I mean, perfect, perfect composition. My background is filmmaking. And so it was perfectly composed, perfectly lit. You know, the, the color contrast was perfect. It was also being shot at a very high frame so that everything looked very smooth and it looked, it looked perfect. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at that image and I knew it was fake precisely because it was so perfect. Right. Because usually uh, when you see... Um, when, when you see like a lot of incidents that happen in real life, like car accidents and stuff like that, you always look at it and you're just like saying, oh man, this crappy camera angle, you know, that's what you always say. Yeah. Because it's sort of like always like in the corner, you know, 
it's always like, you know, like in the corner or you're like, it's hard to, to tell what's going on because of course the camera is not set up to capture whatever event we're talking about, whether it be a crash or, or a meteor or whatever, it's set for a completely different purpose. And it just happens to catch that particular image. And so far as that missile strike um, in, in Donetsk that, that um, was sent with these uh, anti-personnel uh, uh, pellets, what's it called? Um, uh, um, oh, you know what I'm talking about, the, the kind that are prohibited. Uh, like cluster munitions. Cluster, cluster munitions, that's the word I'm, I'm groping for. Yeah. Yeah, and so it was sent with cluster munitions, right? Deliberately designed to kill people. Now, yeah. There, there was only one camera angle that caught it. Because what happened was that it was intercepted by Russian anti-missile anti systems. And so the, the, the horror of it was that 21 people died and 30 odd people or 40 people were severely injured, but it could have been much worse because it was going for a, a more densely populated area. But yeah. the point is, there was only one camera video image. And it was the most awkward damn thing because it was clear it was a security camera that was pointed um, outside the facade of a shop pointing down, okay, at the facade. And it was clearly placed there so that the owner of this shop could, when the door was closed, see if anybody came to break in and would be able to see their faces. But it was at an incredibly awkward angle. And of course, the shop was open, and you see uh, a couple of adults and a child. The child was sort of like playing and just looking at stuff, and you know, being being a seven year old or an eight year old or whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, they they like they like look around and then they fall over. Okay, and it looked. I mean, uh, I'm not mocking by any stretch of the imagination the, the horror they must have experienced, but it looked faintly ridiculous. Okay, because of course it was not a designed shot. It just was fortuitous that it captured the imagery of these people's uh, uh, suffering, right? They're, and so the point is that whenever you see video image that looks perfect, you know it's fake. You know it's fake. Because the odds of capturing something that perfectly are astronomically low, okay? Yeah. Uh, and so like in Donetsk, you have this awkward camera angle in black and white and um, at a fairly slow frame rate, I, I would estimate that it, it looked to be like 15 frames per second. Okay, so so everything looked slightly choppy, you know. And the reason it's at a lower frame rate is because a lower frame rate requires less memory storage for the camera system. See? Mm -hmm. Because of course, if you film at 30 frames per second and you get like this smooth and pristine imagery, uh, you know, it's double the memory usage. What's the point of that? You know, it's just a security camera. Yeah. Whereas in that missile strike in Kharkov, in, in the square, it was an extremely high frame rate. I would guess 30 frames per second. Well, technically it's 29.97 frames per second, but you know, only, only, only nerds like me know that. But anyway, <laughs> the, the point is that, you know, just looking at it, you're like, this is fake because compositionally it just looked too perfect. And that's the image that uh, came out. And also the obvious fact, the building had no military purpose whatsoever. It's just mm. an administrative building, a very pretty administrative building, but no purpose whatsoever on a military level. It was the only building hit. The only time such a building was hit by a missile strike. And the angle from where the missile came, uh, to me, it basically was shot from the south to the north and hitting the building. And in the south, there were no Russian troops at that time. And also, so, uh, to me, it's obvious. Was that early March, by the way, or late February? 
Yeah, uh, I, I do believe it was like the first of March. At that time, I was traveling in transition, and so I didn't quite catch when it happened. I caught okay. it only later. Yeah. Okay, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, that's that. I mean, that's an no, important no, no, point. No, no. Like you're you're saying, uh, from the south, there are no Russian forces there, and not a military target. So illogical that it's a Russian strike. Yeah, I mean, because where it was coming from, um, the, where the missile was coming from, if I'm, I'm picturing the map in my head as we're talking, it was coming from the south and slightly to the west, okay, uh, of the building, and and it it there there wasn't any Russian troops at that time, okay. They were amassed to the north and they were spreading out from the north, eastward and westward, but far out of range of such a thing, okay? And so it, it just didn't make any sense. And again, the, the Russians have consistently hit military targets. Why it, it was? Why would they hit a municipal building where there's just gonna be documentation and you know, deeds and you know, civil judgments and all kinds of you know, garbage, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, you, what are you gonna do with that stuff? You know, kill people with paper cuts? I mean, come on. <laughs> and so, well, what, what kind was, of was, what kind of effect did this have on the people of Kharkov? Do they believe it was a Russian oh, strike? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, most of them do believe it, uh, mm -hmm. of course. And if, but that's not so important. The right. West believes it. Yeah. Okay. Because that's why they did it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm convinced that that strike in particular that was definitely uh, done for the for the for the clicks for West for the propaganda campaign. I have no doubt in my mind. Yeah. I look. It, when um, when they tried to when the Russians captured the um, Zaporozhye nuclear power station, the um, Ukraine the Zelensky regime deliberately sent a, a rocket propelled grenade team to that nuclear power plant and started firing at the Russians to deliberately draw fire from the Russians and so that they could claim that the Russians were shooting up a nuclear power station. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, you started looking at the details, and it turns out that they weren't, number one, they weren't shooting at the actual building because this, this rocket, rocket propelled grenade team uh, was at an administrative building near the um, nuclear power station, number one. Number two, these nuclear power stations, they're designed deliberately, of course, to withstand a direct missile strike. So you know, nothing was going to happen. Okay? And, you know, uh, a rocket propelled grenade and the kind of you know small arms fire going on there it's just like it, 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 you know it, it's it's not even like a pea shooter hitting you it's it's like uh you know if somebody with a small spoon starts flicking you know individual <laughs> grains of sand at you okay i mean it's not going to do anything to you okay i mean small arms fire and nuclear power station where that stuff is you know they've got concrete walls you know 10 feet thick not kidding you know, nothing. Okay. But of course, the PR, which mm -hmm. is the point. The Zelensky regime has been carrying out one of the most sophisticated um, uh, PR campaigns in history. I mean, it really is. They have gotten all of the mainstream media to be spouting lies about what's going on. And the thing is, see, the people ought to realize this because we have been the subject of so many lies insofar as COVID, insofar as the vaccines, and now this war. Mm -hmm. uh, also, Black Lives Matter, and people ought to, at, at this point, there is no excuse for you to say, uh, oh, everything the, 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 the mainstream media says is true. No, because anybody who's an adult, not even, you know, modest amount of IQ points, I'm not asking you to be a genius, you can have a good 85 IQ points and realize what's going on here, you know, it's absurd. Yeah.
But uh, people are just buying hook, line, and sinker these stories. Uh, and also, by the way, just to finish off the point, the problem is too that these uh, uh, propagandists realize that people never look into the nitty gritty details. They just catch the headline just to get a, a flavor of what's going on. And so mm -hmm. all they have to do is put the big lie in the big headline. And it doesn't matter if the deals don't add up, so long as nobody really can contradict them with the big letters and big headline, then it'll be okay. And people, the vast majority of people will get an incorrect appreciation of what's going on. Yeah. I speak from experience because in 2003, when the Iraq war was going on, I, uh, you know, I didn't pay attention in the middle of that. I was, I was doing all kinds of work. I was up to my eyeballs in work. So I didn't pay attention to the war. I sort of like listened to it, like kind of like with half an ear. And, uh, and I think, well, you know, these guys must know what the hell they're doing, you know, and I just left it at that. And then later, you know, just a little bit of thinking and you would have realized, oh, man, they were lying their butts off, you know. And so, yeah, the same thing is happening here. Well, you know, I can just give a couple more. Um, uh, I can add on to that. So um, uh, I uh, a few years ago, I was in uh, Montreal, Canada giving a lecture and uh, two Canadian prostitutes attended the lecture with the sole intent of smearing me, which they did. And I, I wrote a rebuttal, like uh, completely debunking their smear. But anyway, point being at that um, uh, lecture, I met this wonderful Canadian journalist who was in Iraq when the US invaded. And he, he told me how he wrote this long report on how Iraqis felt. Obviously, they did not welcome the invasion. 1,400 word report. It was very difficult to get back to his editor in Canada, who, by the way, was one of the journalists that smeared me, a French publication, mm -hmm. La Presse. And he said that she chopped it down to about three, 400 words, completely changed the tone of his report to be that Iraqis were welcoming the invaders. So that, that's one blatant example of, like he said, it was the most shocking example of censorship he's ever endured but for, for myself you know um since 2014 i've been going to syria and i have you know i can't count how many times it's it's too many times to count where i've seen something being reported in mainstream media and i'm on the ground and that's not happening you know um or or like just you know horrific things like uh, a city like aleppo which was occupied not only by al-qaeda but the various other terrorist factions which were not only beheading torturing and imprisoning civilians in the areas they controlled, but also firing daily um, a variety of missiles on and rockets and, and dirty bombs on the civilians of greater Aleppo that was, you know, government controlled Aleppo, killing at least uh, 10 or 11,000 civilians, not to mention military, you know, and, and then in, in late 2016, when Aleppo was liberated of these uh, terrorist forces, Western media is saying Aleppo fell. And I'm, I'm just like, yeah. you know what? Send your daughters, your wives, your sisters to live with these terrorists and tell me how Aleppo fell yeah. after they've lived under yeah. the terrorist rule. Because it's just exactly. disgusting, you know? Um, yeah. When I went to Aleppo in subsequent visits, you know, the streets, okay, there's a lot of destruction. And by the way, you know, when you were talking about Mariupol and destruction there, again, I really appreciate the context like you, most western journalists will just focus on the destruction and not give any context but you know why is there destruction again it's because 
the the Azov, the other battalions embedded amongst civilians, turned buildings into their military headquarters. Same thing in Syria. Mm-hmm. So it, it's yeah. uh, it, it's 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 incredibly um, maddening the the way things are framed. And I, I just have to say, like recently, I was in the Donbass, just on a brief two day um, media tour, and um, there were Western journalists there, um, as far as I know, from two different French uh, mainstream channels, as well as Al Jazeera and uh, Sky News. I believe I haven't had a chance to to look at the the latter two's reports, but I've seen some of the reports of the French journalist and it was as I predicted, you know, a lot of talk about destruction, Uh, the the reports were fairer than I expected, but what was omitted Um, omitted was was like emphasis on the fact that um, the Ukrainian forces had occupied the hospital that we saw that was uh, greatly damaged. Um, uh, uh, completely devoid in any reports I've seen was any mention of the uh, the attack on the hub of Donetsk two weeks ago. Even though we went mm-hmm. to the site and we saw we saw you know the remnants of the um, shrapnel in the ground and you know the imprints of the the bomb in the ground, and we uh, we met with the the head of the DPR and he t- he talked at length about the suffering of the people of the Donbass the past eight years. Um, and, and and specifically about this attack, and I don't, I didn't see any mention whatsoever in in the French reports about this attack. So it's just, you know, just to highlight like um, just how disgusting the Western media is. Uh, and like you're saying, like, yeah. why are people giving it any time when they've w- repeatedly lied well, over yeah. again? I understand why. Uh, uh, I mean, I understand what's going on. It's 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 all very clear to me at this point, it, it, because what's going on is that see, these media companies, uh, they need access to the government so oh, yeah. they can actually produce news stories. Absolutely. And so they have, over the years, little by little, compromised themselves beyond repair. Because, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there was this notion that the press had to be adversarial. But in order to get news, to in order to be embedded with the forces, they had to trim their sails and, and become mouthpieces for the government. And now they can no longer in de- investigate independently. Also, what happens is that the journalists who advance are the journalists who play ball. Okay, If you don't play ball, if you don't toe the ideological line that is being set by the government, then what happens is that your career does not advance. But whose career does advance? Those willing to toe that line, to right. lie outright, let alone shade the truth, in order to please their masters in the government. And this is what's pernicious. It's the government. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is that a lot of these uh, media outlets have are owned by oligarchs. And these oligarchs mm-hmm. have all kinds of business ties to the government. The governments in the Western democracies account for something like 40% of the GDP directly or indirectly. And so these oligarchs who own the media, take Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos is the perfect example. He is uh, uh, the, the controller of Amazon. Now, Amazon has huge business with the government. People don't realize this, but Amazon has what's known as Amazon Web Services, AWS. And this uh, business unit of Amazon contributes something like 30% to its profitability. It's a very important business unit of Amazon overall. And this company, AWS, does a lot of business with uh, the government. You know, the CIA runs all of its computing systems off of AWS. I mean, it's a big, big deal. And so what happens is that the um, AWS does this business with Washington with the US government. And on the flip side, Jeff Bezos bought 
the Washington Post from the Graham family, and he's the owner of it. And so what kind of news story is going to be published by the Washington Post? Right. Stories that make the government look good. Stories that toe the line of whatever the government is saying. Now, you do have to keep in mind something else that's happened is that a lot of news organizations no longer make money. They don't make money because they used to sell advertising. But what's happened is that the social media companies have, in essence, stolen that advertising revenue because the uh, news organizations spend the money to create the content, to create the story, to get the video and all the rest of it. But people, just average everyday people, see the story and will post the link onto their Facebook, their, their YouTube, their whatever. And what will happen is that people experiencing Facebook will see the content, but the ads will be for Facebook, for Google not for whoever created the content. And that's why news organizations have been failing, especially over the last 15 years or so. But an organization like the Washington Post, owned by Jeff Bezos, doesn't mind if the Washington Post loses money because the purpose of the Washington Post is not to be a profitable business unit. Mm -hmm. Its purpose is to smooth the relations with the government so that Jeff Bezos can make a lot more money off of AWS he doesn't care if the Washington Post loses, say, $100 million a year, because with AWS and the smooth relations he has with the government, he's making a couple of billion a year. So in fact, it's to his benefit to have a propaganda outlet with like the kind of prestige of the Washington Post, because that way he can spew out what the government wants everybody to hear, and it seems as if it's an independent news organization, <laughs> when in fact, it is a propaganda outlet with direct ties, in, I mean, excuse me, indirect ties, but very clear ties to the Central Intelligence Agency, to the State Department, to the Washington establishment, to the narrative, to the bullshit, to the lies. Yeah. You see how it works? Oh, absolutely. And thank you for laying that out. And I think we could also extend that, uh, not Bezos necessarily, but like the the supposed human rights groups like Amnesty International or Human oh, yeah. Rights Watch. Oh, yeah. Same thing, same, same thing. thing. Function as uh, an outlet for these various intelligence agencies. But we're, you know, people in the West are, are meant to believe that they're neutral, independent bodies that care about, you know, whatever issue they're covering. But yeah, thank you very much for detailing that. I'm, I mean, uh, I didn't know that about Bezos, but I'm, I'm not surprised and like yeah. uh, as i always maintain the media isn't there to inform it's it's there to tell you what to think right um yeah, and at the same exactly. time something you said earlier like you know um i think you touched upon it like they might issue a, a retraction but you know it's never noticed and meanwhile people <laughs> like yourself and myself and my colleagues um, we have to be very, very careful about what we put out. We have to be, you know, mm -hmm. uh, diligent in our research and what we state and, you know, issue caveats if we're not certain about something. Because if we, uh, if we sorry, don't... Sorry to, interrupt, sorry to interrupt, but, you know, even last year with, with, with the medical information, even some information that was factually accurate, mm -hmm. uh, it got people banned. So it was completely, it's become completely arbitrary. This oh, yeah. I mean, I, I hate... Absolutely. Yeah, sorry, sorry, you, no, no, you're right. You can be citing like official sources like the WHO, even though I don't, <laughs> they're obviously a scandal ridden organization, but you can cite them themselves or, uh, 
you know, any official source and you can still be censored and banned on social media. Yeah. But the, the, yeah. the, point, the point I was just going to make is just like uh, when you when your name has become a, a bitter or well known as yours has, as mine to some degree has, you know, then you have to be really careful because any anything you say can be taken out of context, context and used against you. Uh, any any yeah. slip up you make because we're all human, we all make mistakes, you know, can be used against mm -hmm. you to discredit everything you say. Whereas these big media uh, conglomerates outright lie and outright fabricate uh, stories that mm -hmm. didn't even happen, you know, and, and then if if they're ever caught, which they are caught by diligent journalists and citizen journalists even, uh, then they just say, oops, well, you know, it happened. It's, it's, Sorry. it's, it's a weird <laughs> yeah. mistake, you know. We were led to, be, yeah. oh, but you know what? Something I wanted to touch on. I wanted to touch on sources. Now, this is again, drawing a parallel uh, with Syria and Ukraine. Uh, to my knowledge, a lot of the Western media is using <laughs> Azov as one of their main sources, whether it's using their footage or uh, I, I'm not sure if they're yeah. actually quoting from Azov, but they did the same thing sure in Syria. Are. And what they would do in Syria, they would say, sources say, or activists say, media activists. And often they wouldn't even name them. And if they did name them, you know, it took like, five seconds to google the person's name find the name on facebook and find out their uh allegiance to isis for example or or al-qaeda yeah. um and i i yeah. think it's it's probably um the same i don't know if you can speak to that uh reporting on on ukraine like the sources that western media are using the sea report and all the shows on this podcast channel are 100% listener supported. We don't have corporate sponsors. We don't have independent sponsors. Our sponsors are you, the listener. So if you like the work we do and like what we have to say and contribute to the world of news and information and entertainment, please show us your support. Make a monthly donation to help sustain future episodes at anchor.fm slash the sea report. Your support is greatly appreciated. From 99 cents per month to 4.99 per month to 9.99 per month. Every donation counts and every bit helps. Show your support for the Sea Report and other shows on this podcast channel by visiting anchor.fm/theseareport. And thanks y'all. Yeah, but the thing is, see, that, that's exactly what's going on, that, that the Western media is using uh, interested, source, interested parties as sources, and also, you know, basically the bad guys. But yeah. here's the key issue, the, the key difference. See, uh, and I no disrespect to the people of Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan or Libya, but these countries, and I'm sorry to say this, they're small. They don't really matter on the global stage. I, I don't mean to be rude or dismissive in any regard. I, I, I respect the people, the people as a people and as individuals. But in a geopolitical sense, they are small. Russia is not. Russia matters. Russia has more nuclear weapons than any country on the planet. It also has a first-grade military, as it is shown in 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 this uh, in this conflict. They have they have a military that is superior to NATO's. Because if the Ukrainian army, as I explained before, is a NATO army, NATO trained, NATO equipped, with NATO communications and, and able to be integrated into NATO at the flick of a switch, and the Russians are so decisively defeated, then it's clear that the Russians are far superior militarily to NATO. 
And so these lies are giving a very, very false perception of the reality on the ground. And when reality hits you, see, reality is like a bus. You, you can you know, explain it away all you want, but that bus is going to hit you if you don't get out of its way. Okay? <laughs> and my great concern about what's been going on is that they are giving the West a false perception that the Russians are losing. Mm-hmm. And when reality is exactly the opposite, they are decisively winning and winning in a way that is, I personally think that if, if when historians look at this, military historians, they will say that this is one of the most brilliant invasions in military history, because it really is certainly one of the most humane in terms of reducing and limiting the loss of life. I'm not saying that there hasn't been a loss of life and it's been mm-hmm. tragic. And I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that there are random Russian units who have committed atrocities, human rights violations of various sorts, because unfortunately in industrial warfare, this has always happened. In, I mean, no army is squeaky clean in that regard because unfortunately there are evil people everywhere in, in every army. But overall, looking at it in its totality, the Russian army has been in incredibly careful with the with the civilian casualties and trying to minimize that loss of life and so um but the problem is that the media is giving such a false sense of reality that it and it is creating deliberately creating in my view the conditions whereby a chemical attack by the ukraines against their own people is becoming more and more likely i i think that's going to happen now in the next 10 days And I've been beating this drum relentlessly Mm -hmm. that this chemical attack will happen and it will be um, carried out by the Zelensky regime armed with chemical weapons brought to it by the Americans because the Americans are the only ones who have chemical weapons at this point. The Russians destroyed their chemical weapons, the last ones in 2017, and this was confirmed by weapons inspectors at that time. There's no doubt that um that russia does not have chemical weapons at this time and so you know my thinking is that the americans um knowing that the ukrainian situation is lost and trying to find some excuse to me will give the ukraine's uh chemical weapons to create a false flag i used to think that and i'm pretty confident of that i will i'm still confident that, that that will or likely will happen However, something else has popped up into my on radar, if you will. Um, a lot, there's a lot of talk coming out of the Pentagon that there seems to have been a complete loss of morale in the Pentagon with regards to specific weapon systems that Americans have and not only have, but depend on. Specifically to the Javelin anti-tank missile system and the F-22 Raptor, which is the latest uh, generation stealth fighter that the Americans have, that they are so uh, um, uh, jealous of that they do not even allow a foreign version to be sold to its NATO allies. Only the United States have F-22 Raptor aircraft. And the word that's coming down from analysts, uh, military analysts, is that it seems that these weapon systems are ineffective against the Russians that the Russians see them coming insofar as the F-22. And insofar as the uh, Javelin anti-tank missile system, they are proving to be in combat completely ineffective. And the Javelin anti-tank system seems to have been a major component of the American doctrine of how to fight a conventional war against a peer army. And so it might be that the Pentagon does not want 
under any circumstances get involved in a war because he knows that they will be annihilated by the Russians, which would be a, a, a catastrophic blow to the whole American enterprise. And so I'm, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that the Pentagon says, no, 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 we don't want any part of this war and no false flag, no, nothing that can escalate because we will lose and we will lose badly. I'm hoping that that is the, the mentality in, in the Pentagon because, um, because I think that if they carry out a false flag and this creates the conditions whereby NATO intervenes, Ukraine will be ruined, turned to rubble. Uh, ancient cities like Kiev, like Odessa, uh, annihilated and destroyed for nothing, for absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. and, and that is something that we want to avoid. I mean, forget about the loss of human life and, and the suffering, okay? Uh, we want to avoid a wider escalation of this war at all costs. And so I am hoping that the people at the Pentagon are realizing we can't beat the Russians, so let's not even try. Uh, that is what I'm hoping for, um, but, but only time will tell. But I'll tell you right now for your audience, if there is any kind of chemical attack, know for a fact mm. that it was the Ukrainians who did it supplied with American weaponry. It is not the Russians because the Russians are winning. Anybody who says that they are not winning right. doesn't understand military strategy or what's the reality on the ground right now. They've, they've fallen for the trap of, um, of the propaganda. And by the way, what's interesting is that some people on my Twitter account say, oh, you know better than all the Western military strategists. <laughs> well, you see, if you are operating under false information, your results are going to be mistaken. And somebody who is operating under accurate information is going to have the correct conclusion. In, in, in computer programming, it's garbage in, garbage out. The same thing. You can have the best, most brilliant, most knowledgeable military analysts, but if they are being given false information as to the reality on the ground, of course they're going to be wrong. And some nobody like me is going to be completely accurate because I'm seeing what's going on. I'm telling you, hey, this is what's going on. Absolutely. You know? it's, it's, it's not complicated. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, I, I, I very much value your um, insights and your analysis, which is why we're talking today. And uh, I think, yeah, that's a, that's a really, really, really good point, like um, about what information these uh, supposed analysts are being fed. But there are good analysts like Scott Ritter, you know, he's he's got a really good analysis. Um, and you and I oh, were yeah. chatting about a, a Russian military analyst based in the US, and that is Andre Martyanov. Excellent. Yeah, I, I, and by the way, for your audience, I, I crib all of my analysis of the Javelin and F-22 uh, <laughs> weapon systems from, uh, from him, you know? Yeah. But, you know, he's the brains who does the actual work, and I'm just a pretty pretty mouthpiece who, who uses <laughs> out and, and pretends it's his. But, well, but I, you appreciate, I appreciate your honesty there. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, so, no. and, and thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, of course I'm honest. I, I am pretty, you know? I deny it. You know, I'm going to say Russian bot. That's what I'm going to say. You're a Russian bot denying my attractiveness. Yeah. Do you think that this pot belly and this double chin just happened on its own? No, it was years of effort, crying out loud. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, man, we could talk about that for a while, but let's let's move on to um, let's move on to the issue of humanitarian corridors. Um, now, oh, when you and I were chatting yesterday, you were talking about uh, again. This is a parallel to Syria when there are humanitarian corridors opened and the whole 
like if people don't understand the concept, the whole concept is a humane way of allowing civilians to leave an area that is going to become a, 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 an area of conflict um, to escape to you know safety and to be given yeah. humanitarian aid. Um, and so, yeah. but what we saw in Syria was routinely um, terrorists were using uh, Syrian civilians as human shields, not allowing them. In fact, even in Eastern Ghouta, east of Damascus, the terrorist faction Jaysh al-Islam, uh, I forget the year, but anyway, at one point, they used civilians not only as human shields, but they put them in cages and put them on rooftops. So it was pretty <laughs> disgusting. Yeah. But throughout yeah. Syria, we saw terrorists preventing civilians from leaving. And then if they were allowed to leave, they had to pay some exorbitant price per person to mm. leave the area in question. Yeah. And even then, they, their, their safety wasn't guaranteed. Terrorists would routinely fire um, on humanitarian corridors. So what's the situation in Ukraine? And like, for example, if you wanted to leave, um, and I, of course, don't want you to talk about which way you would leave or anything mm -hmm. like that, but what would be the, the process from the Ukrainian side? Well, um, uh, at this point in time, there are only roads to leave. I do not believe that trains are running anymore. Um, you'd have to go by car uh, or, or, or truck and or get on uh, a bus. But the problem is that, see, okay, so as you're leaving the city, there are going to be uh, Ukrainian army checkpoints, and there are going to be multiples on the road, and you're going to cross like a no man's land and get to the Russian side. Now, the word is that on the Russian side, you're fine, because the Russians have are deliberately um, keeping a, a strict discipline insofar as treating civilians properly, not harming them. There's also a, an ethnic component here. See, the Russians are Russian, obviously, and so they view the, 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 the refugees as they're people. <laughs> They're not going to shoot their own people. Okay. Yeah. Imagine this. Imagine like uh, the United States were to invade, say, Canada, you know, and it's from Toronto. Okay. And then some refugees come out of Toronto. Are the Americans going to start shooting at the uh, Torontonians who want to leave? Certainly not, because they say, yeah, there are people. Oh, yeah, they're Canadian, but you know, same thing. You know, uh, you know, Ontario is just another state of the United States. Just, you know, it was weird flag with a maple leaf. Right. And so th there would be no incentive, no desire. OK. And also, like I said, the Russian high command has made it very, very clear to maintain strict discipline insofar as treatment of civilians for the reasons mentioned before. And we have to remember the Russians, they are practical people. A lot of times their humanitarianism serves practical goals. Okay, the notion of not abusing civilians and of distributing humanitarian aid. Of course, I have no doubt in my mind that many of these soldiers are doing it because they are kind people and they want to relieve human suffering. Okay, I mean, no doubt in my mind whatsoever. There was this babushka. Uh, I saw a video of of her, some old lady, you know, with a typical scarf and heavy coat and carrying bags, right? Typical, and she was walking through essentially a combat area. And all of a sudden, the squad of Russian soldiers, I mean, big, big dudes with very big guns, were surrounding this babushka. And one of them was escorting her out, and the others were just like looking around, looking for any sniper fire. Because, of course, they're, they're kids. They're in their 20s or very early 30s, and they see some nice old lady, and they don't want her hurt, okay? I mean, because people are basically kind, even soldiers in the fiercest battles, okay? And by the way, to their credit, the, the Ukrainians who saw this scene, who probably saw this scene, all of a sudden you could tell that the, the shooting died down. It was sort of like, okay, we'll just wait a little till the old lady crosses, right? 
And um, yeah, that, that kind of thing is perfectly natural, you know, the, the, the normal human decency. But the Russians also are thinking pragmatically. They're thinking, we help the civilians and they are going to help us long term. We make sure that they're safe and protected and warm and, and fed properly and all the rest of it. And later on, after this is all over, we'll have good relationships with them. They're not going to like arm resistance or, or do anything foolish like that. And so it's going to be good for us, good for them. You see? Mm -hmm. And so they're thinking pragmatic. Now, humanitarian corridors, uh, there are two reasons that you want to have a humanitarian corridor. And this is the experience of the Russians in Syria. See, on the one hand, you want to have humanitarian corridors to evacuate an area of civilians, because civilians, of course, can become human shields can become inadvertently uh, the targets of hostility and, and fire and death and destruction, you know, all that. And so you want to get rid of the civilians in the sense of evacuating them from an area. But also, you want to create humanitarian corridors to drain away some less committed fighters. Because what will happen is that if you have a humanitarian corridor open and the Russians are basically letting people in and not really uh, uh, you know, tightening the rip on it and ensuring that nothing happens to them in the corridor, then fighters who are less committed are more likely to lay down their weapon, change their clothes into civilian clothes and try to slip away. Mm -hmm. And this has happened. And the Russians catch them. They, they're not stupid. But this is part of the reason that they set up humanitarian corridors to drain away the less committed fighters. And so what the Russians are doing, and there's a lot of video of this going around, is that they are asking the, the men, they recognize immediately that they're soldiers because they have that look, right? They're leaner, they, they, they you know, because less body fat, you know, you know, you, if they see a guy like me, you know, in his early 50s, you know, uh, not, not in very good shape, quite frankly, a little bit, uh, a little bit overweight, uh, they're going to say, oh, that guy's not a fighter. They're just going to let me through. But if some, they see somebody who's lean, they'll ask him to raise his shirt and mm -hmm. open his shirt or take off his sweater or whatever to look for tattoos, see? And so the ones who have Nazi tattoos, and there are, and they've caught them, okay? The ones who have Nazi tattoos and all the rest of it, they go one way. And the, the soldiers who don't have any tattoos, and they're soldiers, even when they lie and say that, no, I'm not a soldier, why would you think that, you know? And uh, yeah, those guys, they let them go, see? Because they don't have any interest in just regular soldiers who just are demoralized and want no more part of this, but they do want, the uh, neo-Nazi element because they want to try, you know? I mean, that's what they're gonna do. And that's why the Azov Battalion and all these people, they fight so fierce because they, they know that they have, they will receive no mercy from the Russians. They're terrified of them. And so that's why in Mariupol, they're gonna fight to the last man there. And, and that police action, because at this point it's really a police action. It's basically the Russian soldiers just grinding them down. I mean, because it's over in Mariupol. As a military matter, it's over, okay? Now it's just policing it and getting rid of these crazies. And the only way they're going to get rid of these crazies is by shooting them all, you know? And I'm not saying this in a cavalier sense. I'm saying it as a, because these men, these Azov battalion, they have no interest in surrendering because they know that they will receive no mercy. And especially with these uh, atrocities that have come out as of late of how they treated and abused and, and murdered uh, Russian prisoners of war, well, these uh, Azov people will suffer the most gruesome ends. I mean, I have no doubt in my mind, and I'm sure that the Russians will deny it, of course, you know, but the, how can I put it? There's always this collective verdict, 
okay, in any army. That, um, and it's a lot like high school. You, you know, in high school, you, you, you walk around in high school and, uh, you know, perhaps like you had this classmate who's kind of like a jerk or whatever, but everybody all of a sudden finds out, oh, you know, his, like, uh, his mother died or something like that. And then all of a sudden there's like this collective judgment, like, okay, let's just give him a pass, you know? And all of a sudden everybody's just like much nicer and much more forgiving of a lot of nonsense in the kid because they recognize that, you know, there's that, that invisible collective judgment, okay? Insofar as the Azov battalion members are concerned, they're dead men because what's gonna happen is that the Russians, they're gonna shoot them all, you know, no question. And, and I'm not saying this, you know, I'm talking about it in a realistic sense because the outrage, that uh, that is on those videos, the despicable actions of torturing defenseless men and young men, boys, right, who had all their lives ahead of them, and to be shot in the kneecaps was one of the most painful things that can happen to a man, and then murdered some of them, you know. And there's one in particular that I found so deeply, deeply disturbing of, of a young soldier, there are two videos of him. One, he's being interrogated by these animals. And then later, for some reason, in a hallway at the bottom of a stairwell, yeah. they're there and they butcher the kid. Yeah, They, they stabbed him, it was one man who stabbed him uh, through the throat from the top of, you know, he, he had this boy on his knees tied behind, with his hands tied behind his back and started stabbing him in the neck, you know, where the, where the neck meets the shoulder right? Stabbing him multiple times and the screams of this poor kid. Yes. And th they'll haunt anybody. And at the end, he murdered him by sticking the knife through his eye and yes. gouging out his eye and, of course, oh. piercing his brain. And it's horrifying. <sighs> and this was shown on Russian television. And it's galvanized the Russian public. And I think that people in the West have no idea the rage that that inspired because anybody with any shred of decency will say that that is just, that's beyond the pale. Yeah. And you see, killing somebody in a war, it's tragic. You know, they get killed by you know, machine gun fire, rolled over by a tank or whatever, whatever horrible way a person dies. It's terrible, but it's uh, part of the game, okay? It's fair, okay? It's not nice. No, of course not. Death is never nice, but it's, it's understandable, okay? A sniper who shoots another man Distasteful, yes, but the sniper is just doing his job. He's doing his job for the, and it's it's clear, it's fair, it's fair play. But this, no, this is not fair. And and I don't think the West realizes how this has galvanized the Russian public. Okay, this war is not going to end until Russia has complete control of Ukraine of every inch of it. Okay, and it's because of these videos because there might have been some doubts, perhaps even a lot of doubt. But after these videos, which there's no doubt, there's absolutely no doubt that they're legitimate. They're not propaganda. They're, the Russians didn't fabricate this. No, no, no. And of course, you, the way the internet is, they even know the exact location where this happened. It's a location. It was a, a milk factory that is about, um, oh, about 24 kilometers from my current position. Uh, in a, it's basically Southeast of the center of the city and um it, it, it's you know the way you know the, uh, internet sleuths do it they use google maps and it, it's the place it, it is the place where this took place 
this where this happened. And no doubt that that area is under the control of the Ukrainian armed forces. And so basically, this is no question that it's legitimate. Yeah. And apparently some of the victims have been positively identified. I mean, they, they are known Russian soldiers who have gone missing. Okay. And so uh, this is galvanized the Russians. You know, I think that Putin's approval rating must be close to 90%, if not higher. Okay. He has all the political wind at his back. They are going to annihilate uh, these fascists. Uh, they've already captured a couple, as I understand it. I haven't read the news in detail. I do believe you, right? I mean, I shared something um, yesterday. I'm not, I can't confirm that they have, but uh, th there were, yeah. there were reports. So They're working. Um, oh, yeah. They're motivated. To find but, you know, uh, yeah. Gonzalo, I, I just want to say, like, um, I know you deflect, like, too much attention to your own safety, but a lot of people, you know, it has to be said, a lot of people are concerned about your own safety being that you are in uh, Kharkov and, you know, there are these uh, Nazis and extremists all around you. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. I, I can't I can't wrap things up without saying, you know, on behalf of listeners and people that have um, written on Telegram and, and Twitter and elsewhere, like, you know, we're all we're all praying for your safety and uh, and, and, very oh, great, uh, and very uh, grateful to you yeah, for what you're doing. You, you shouldn't out. you shouldn't do that. And I'll tell you why. I know, I know. My, my critics, my critics say that I'm a Russian bot. Okay, so, I've, so I've been I, I'm, that a as well. bot, you know, uh, I'm good, you know, I'm just a figment of people's circuitry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're having you know? A, a, a two Russian bot conversation right now, then. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're a Russian bot, too. Oh. You know, my programmer, you know, he, he never gets me anything good to eat. You know, it's always this alternating currency instead of direct currency. That, that's the kind of currency I really like. But no, you know, he, he, and he never puts me in the cool chips. He always puts me in the old chips. You know, it's no fair. <laughs> Life of a bot is just no fun at all. Huh? Don't you agree? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm waiting for your memoirs. <laughs> well, look, I'm going to wrap up. Uh, I really, really, really appreciate um, your time and your really insightful No problem analysis. at all. It's my, uh, my pleasure. Yeah, and we'll have to chat again uh, in the near future. Oh, we definitely will. We yeah. definitely will. So thank you, Gonzalo. Be well. Enjoy botting. Um, I hope you get a hot <laughs> meal. I know you've said on Twitter or maybe your channel you haven't had a hot yeah, meal in a month. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm dreaming of a steak. Oh man, I'm dreaming of a steak. That that's you know like what I like is like seared on the outside and like uh, like a really rare on the inside. Oh, I'm dreaming of that. That that's that that's the first thing I'm going to do when I when when they open up the city or when whenever I find a, a restaurant that will serve me because oh. I'm dying for that. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm looking forward to the time in the hopefully not too distant future when we can meet in person and shake hands and yes. you know. Share yes, I'd love that. <laughs> All yeah. right. Thanks so much, Gonzalo. Take care.